You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. One essential ingredient to any actor's career is experience. It allows us to develop our craft and hone our skills over time. With each performance, we refine techniques, we learn from mistakes, and develop greater emotional and psychological depth in our performances. But this growth in credibility and authenticity in acting comes as much from our offstage lives as it does from our onstage experiences. And today's guest shares both personal and professional challenges that have shaped her not only into a great actress, but an amazing person as well. Hi, I'm Sharon Catherine Brown. I am born and raised in New York City. Also, I was bicoastal for a long time as well and would go back and forth where the jobs were. And I also spent nine years on the road where I went from one show to another and didn't really, wasn't really anywhere. <laughs> but yet I was everywhere. Shaycat, as she is known to her friends, has experiences and a resume on stage and on screen that any actor would love to have. Her film work includes A Chorus Line and Sister Act 2. And on television, she's appeared in soap operas like Generations and sitcoms like The Jeffersons, Good Times, and The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. But theater is where she got her start and remains her first love. From Broadway productions of Dreamgirls and Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat to the national tours of The Wiz, Rent, and Jekyll and Hyde. She and I met this past year doing a new musical version of the classic novel Anne of Green Gables. And in part one of our conversation, she shares with us the long line of performers in her family, a harrowing experience in her first Broadway show, and the moment she knew she was born to be a drama queen. That's why we do theater. We're a particular breed of crazy. Because anything could happen when you're on stage and you just have to go with it. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode here on Why I'll Never Make It, an award-winning theater podcast hosted by yours truly, Patrick Oliver Jones, an actor and singer for more than 30 years. Every other week, I talk with fellow creatives who bring us stories from their own life of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe, donate, and find past episodes. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Welcome, Sharon Catherine Brown. It is a joy to have you on the podcast. It is a joy to be here, my dear, dear friend who I love so much. Well, and and it's hard for me to say that full name because I just know you as Shaycat. You can that's and, that's your name. Yeah. I mean, I'm fine with you that you'll do your thing and let people know who's on your show, but you you have to call we're friends, people. We're friends in real life. So yeah, don't do that, Sharon Catherine on me. <laughs> Now, when was the first time you used Shaycat? When did you start going by that name? A friend of mine, Brian Flores, was in the show Head Over Heels with me uh, on Broadway. And he gave me that name and it stuck. And everybody was like, that's so cool. And I was like, it was done with such affection and I loved it so much. And then it just went and then 
everybody, everybody calls me Shea Cat. And I, I love it so much because of how it was started. It's just gone from project to project. And I'm like, yeah, that's just, it makes me so happy. I always think of Brian when somebody calls me Shea Cat and, and everybody calls me Shea Cat. Yeah. Yeah. Because it wasn't until like the, I think the second week of our rehearsals in Anne of Green Gables that I knew your name was Sharon. Like <laughs> people would say, people would say Sharon. I was like, who's Sharon? They go, Shea Cat. I went, oh. <laughs> Well, well, it also came really came in handy when uh, when I did Carolina Change because I was the standby for Sharon D. Clark. I was Sharon C. Brown. And Sharon, I was like, that has never happened ever, ever. And I, you don't have to worry about who you're calling because I go by Shea Cat. And everybody was like, oh, that's great. Was on all my clothes and everything. It was it was so. Did convenient. you put stickers on everything? I saved that for you. I didn't get those stickers until we did Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> so what you need to know, listener, is that this woman bought stickers that that just had Shake Hat all over them. All over them. And then she proceeded to put these stickers everywhere in her dressing room on donut boxes everywhere. I don't know what they you're talking about. Donut everywhere. boxes. <laughs> I understand that you have an audience that you have to appeal to, but don't lie. Don't like me. Do, do it honest. You know, get, get the right. ratings honestly. Right. Don't tell stories like that. That's ridiculous. Who would do that? <laughs> yeah. Well, then fine. Why don't we tell some of your stories now? That'll get us into the first one. And so you want to talk about being not just a Broadway legacy baby, meaning that one of your parents was on Broadway, but you're a double Broadway legacy baby. What, how? Okay, yeah. So, <laughs> so here's you how come it, from a long line. Yeah. Then. Here's how it works. So you know, uh, my dad Johnny Brown, who is from Lappin and Good Times. He was Mr. Bookman on Good Times. He passed away recently, and so you you know that because you're my friend and you went through um, so much with me with that. And my dad was Sammy Davis Jr.'s protege, and he was one of the stars of Sammy's show Golden Boy, and he had a huge number called uh, Don't Forget 127th Street. It literally brought down the house eight shows a week. Like that was my dad's big break. But he was also on Broadway in a play that was a musical in a play called Carry Me Back to Morningside Heights, directed by Cindy Portier. Louis Gossett Jr. was in that and uh, an incredible cast where you look and go, are you kidding me? So it's rare if you're a Broadway legacy baby. That's, you know, pretty cool and rare. You're not going to meet a whole lot of double Broadway where both parents have done. And you're definitely not going to meet someone whose parent did a Broadway show with their parent. So my mother was in a Broadway show, Memphis Bound, with her mother, my grandmother. That's crazy. It makes me so proud and it makes me so, so happy. And like, truly, I came out of the womb looking for center and knowing where, I mean. Did it feel like destiny? You were born to do theater? It felt like that to me, but my parents were ahead of their time in terms of this. They felt this is what they do for a living. That Nothing in them wanted to push their kids to do it. So if it weren't for friends of my parents, maybe I wouldn't have gotten into show business as early as I did. 
because it's my friends that were like, can't you see what you have? Like, she's been, because I, I started at three and a half with like baby modeling because somebody put my picture in, a friend of my parents put my picture in and, you know, all this stuff started happening because my my parents were like, we don't want to be those parents. And when I was doing commercials and print work, I really did see a lot of creepy things. I mean, I, I remember this sticks out in my head the most. I think it was a pudding commercial. It may have been Jello pudding. And the casting person came out. We're all like six, you know, we're babies. All, the casting person asked, who likes chocolate? Raise your hand. Who likes vanilla? Raise your hand. Just so that when we went in, they wouldn't be giving us something that we didn't like. It was not like, if you like vanilla, you weren't going to get the job. It wasn't that. And I saw a mother, her daughter raise her hand. She was like, put your hand down. Because she thought more people are raising their hands for chocolate. You raise your hand for vanilla. You know, like I saw stage mothers like that. My mom was never that. And so on many gigs as a child, my mother was the only parent that was allowed either on set or in the theater because she was normal. <laughs> well, I mean, coming from a theater background herself, then she knew the business and she knew not to take this personally or kind of how to manage this or that she way. She was not only a, a performer, but she was, was an acting teacher. I mean, my mom's point of view, as well as my dad's, but I, my mom, I ha had to be with uh, a parent or a guardian. So it was always my mom, like on Saturday. And she would always look at someone and go, she doesn't pay the bills here. We don't, we're not living off of our daughter. She doesn't have to be in this business. So things were not correct for, you know, we have, when you're underage, you have certain laws and rules that have to be adhered to. And if things were not right, she was like, I'm pulling her. It wasn't like a diva thing. It was like, she's a child and she's a child first. And so this is not a woman trying to live vicariously through her daughter. She's a mom first. And I had to be professional so I was not a bratty kid because that was not going to fly with my mother and father. You know what I mean? So I'm fortunate in that respect that my parents were my parents first. I give a lot of people in show business that have made mistakes that were child actors. I give them a pass because I see the way they were raised. And I see in almost, no, in all, really in every single case, the parents got so involved in show business that they weren't parenting. And I really give them a pass for a lot of stuff because this is a hard industry to be in if you're parenting yourself. And it's really, you're always one breath away from being a, a true Hollywood story if you don't have parents that are like, I don't care whether you're starring on television or on Broadway, your room needs to be clean. That's important. Well, yeah, it's that sense of being grounded so that you don't get, you know, because how you're treated on set is not how you're treated at home or in the rest of your life. And you need to recognize that yeah. and know that difference. Yeah. Oh, when I did my first movie, my foundation is theater. And I'm just so grateful for that. And I love theater so much. Like, it's an, an incredible medium to me. And when I did my first movie, and I remember this like it was yesterday, I walked through the doors 
of the theater because it, it was a chorus line. And so we were shooting at the Mark Hellinger, the old Mark Hellinger, walking through the stage door. And to myself, like at this level, I was like, I wonder if I want breakfast, but just like no louder than that. And like two production assistants, they were like raptors, you know, in Jurassic Park. <laughs> they come from either side. It was like that. And they were like, can I get you anything? You want a muffin or you want a bagel? I thought in that moment, I was like, oh, this is why people lose their minds. I got it. I understood. I was like, if this is all you know, then there's no way you can be grounded. If you can whisper, if you're just wondering about something and somebody, is, you know what I mean? In theater, it's like if one of your castmates doesn't bring breakfast, sometimes you don't have it. <laughs> it's like... You know right. I mean? If there's no donuts, there's no donuts, there's no bagels, and you may be going hungry <laughs> until lunchtime. And I love that about us, by the way. But, you know, it, I it's like I got a really big life lesson in one moment of time to go. There are some people that they graduated college and hit it big. And all they know is this. They don't know anything else. For instance, I played Dorothy in the Wiz on tour. And Andre De Shields was my whiz. <laughs> yeah. oh, I know, right? How wonderful. Wow. And everyone was really intimidated by him because of his presence. And also he worked that. He like he knew people were intimidated, so he worked it. But ding dong, you know, Shake Out was too young because I, I was the youngest to ever play the role. I was 13. And to me, it was Oz on stage and off. And I loved him so much. Like I would knock on his door and people would look and they would, they would go stiff like, oh my God, you're not supposed to knock on his door. And I was like, he loved me. You know what I mean? Like I, he just loved me. So I got away with anything. And because um, when I first started the show, I was a munchkin. I mean, literally I was a munchkin yeah, at 13. I was a munchkin offset. <laughs> I was literally a munchkin. And I came into my dressing room. My mom is there because I'm underage. My mom is there threw my costume down and my mom like looked at me and she glared and she said, what are you doing? And I was like, what? I said, you know, cause I was w- trying to be sophisticated. And I was like, I'm making a quick change. She's like, your change isn't that quick. She said, hang up your costume. Those are your clothes. Pick up your costume. If you don't have, like, <laughs> I'm so fortunate because if you don't know, then you only learn what your experience is. And if you're parenting yourself, there are some 13-year-olds that hit it big on, on a television show and their parents are not in show business and may not necessarily be guiding them in that way. And so they become the breadwinner and they're the role switch or the dynamic switches is what I mean between parent and child. And suddenly they're just anything I want, anything. I, and that, that would never fly in my household. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I never did that again. That's the thing is I never did that again. I've had uh, wardrobe people and wardrobe assistants look at me and go, wow, you're so you're so needy. You're so considerate. Don't worry, I've got it. And I'm like, no, I've got it. Unless this is a thing of this is a quick change. Now I'm hanging up those in my clothes because the other thing my mother was like, have pride in that's your character. Those are your clothes. This is your costume. This is the, the integrity of the business is what I was taught by both of my parents and I'm really I am always so grateful for that because I, I, you could be a monster 
if you start as early as I did and you have no guidance, it's like, you know what I mean? But at the same time, it sounds like that, yes, your your parents taught you a certain way and, and having respect and integrity. But at the same time, you still got to be a kid and enjoy it. It was still a playground yes, and fun for you. Absolutely. Yes, because that was the reason that my mom was always willing to pull me off set because she knew and my dad knew that I was professional and that I knew what that meant and, my, and that I learned it's show business. It's two words. And, and they knew that. But if they felt there was any kind of abuse that was getting ready to happen, they were like, no, she doesn't, she doesn't need it bad enough to have someone, uh, you know, to have a Judy Garland thing, give her amphetamines, give it, she, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, but at the same time, based upon your own parents, then you growing up in the theater and now you are a mom yourself, did that affect how you mothered and how you raised your own son? Yes, because it caused me to put the brakes on. My son is an incredible actor who has no interest in being an actor. He's 18 now. And when he was younger, he did some really wonderful performances. And I discovered that he could act when he was the nine or 10. And I said, do you mind? Because I had an audition coming up. And I said, do you mind reading with mommy and just practicing with me? So I've got the copy for him and the copy for me. And we're doing the scene. And I'm like, can we do it a couple of times? For me, obviously. I'm trying to get off book. And the second time, he's doing the scene, but he's not looking at the side. But I'm looking at it, right? And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. So I'm trying to stay in character and not go, oh my God, my, my child is doing a cold read. My child is doing something that adults like melt before they're able to do it. They'd like, they find so intimidating. And then the third time, that we ran it, I was in a scene with a really good young actor. And I was like, O-M-G. Now, the reason why this is an O-M-G moment for me is because I adopted my child. And there are lots of people that don't know that because he has my smile. And so people just assume they're like, well, of course, of course. You know, he's saying, I was like, no, no, not necessarily, of course. You know what I mean? And I don't know whether it'll change. But I, I had to check myself because, you know, when he was like, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. I couldn't accept the fact that it was a hobby and that he was like, that was then. And now I'm because because he was so good, because the stillness that actors take many, many classes and years of classes to get, he had it naturally, that stillness. And there's this, and and so I was like, you got, you cannot have your great parents and then you be Mama Rose. You can, this cannot happen. So, and he, because I never got to that, yes, yes, but I would be like, your school's having an audition for this. You, you were killing that role. Like, I, and I, I put the brakes on that because, you know, it, it's not fair. For me yeah, to do he's, that. he's going to be um, his own person. That's wh right. Whether or not you push him, really. That's right. And that's why, you know, there's nothing that my parents could have done. It was going to be that for me. You know, if he chooses it later on, that's incredible. 
And, and if he wants to be a lawyer or a doctor, I'll squeak my lungs out and go, oh my God, no, not study work, you know, but <laughs> whatever. For your second story, and I found this one to be hysterical, for your second story, you wanted to share when you knew that you were a drama queen. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> this is when I this is when I knew. So a little backstory: my Broadway debut was Maggie Flynn with Shirley Jones and Jack Cassidy, and in that cast, Irene Cara, who just passed away, I've known her all my life, and Stephanie Mills, and Giancarlo Esposito is an incredible actor. And there's nine kids all, all together. We went to the same school, but we were in different grades. They were all ahead of me. I was the baby of, the, of all those babies. And we went to Lincoln Square Academy, which was a school, it's no longer a school, for performing kids. Lincoln Square Academy is like, you could be, you could be on Broadway and go to school and, you know, that you could do them both. So adults don't want to work with kids or animals. Except for me, I'm that different adult that I'm like, put me on a Disney channel and surround me, please surround me with all the animals you got and all the kids you got. That's my dream job. Okay. That's my dream role, whatever that is. But we were aware that the adults were like, these kids are kicking our butt. Like this was a super talented group of kids with huge voices, huge Bigger, like we like we were little adults. We're all hams. Every one of us is a leg of ham. And you know that kids can do no wrong. And there was this big set. And it was a staircase, but huge, huge staircase, big staircase. And there was an elevator, like a lift that came out of the floor. So at night, the stairs started to crumble. And whatever the mechanism was that moved it from underneath the stage, it just started to crash while we were on it. It starts, something happened and you heard things going, but this staircase went all the way up and there was like a kid on each stair. So we were high up and it started to crumble and you heard the audience start to scream because they were aware of the fact that, oh, this this is not a part of the, the show. And the kids started to scream. You know, everybody was screaming and the, and the curtain had to come down. The stage uh, managers and a lot of the adult cast, they ran. And, you know, get, get, we were crying and screaming and just, you know, shit's like all of that. And they had to remove this huge set. And kids just... Now, what I was four and a half or five, five, I think, I felt it change from we're in real danger, we're going to die, to this is the greatest performance of our lives. I felt it <laughs> because it was an energy that passed from one child to another, all at the, but all at the same time. It was like a lightning bolt that hit us all. It was like, this is scary. We're all going to die. And this, this staircase, this wooden staircase is crumbling. And we're having to jump into the arms of stage managers and other cast. And suddenly we were backstage. They were 
surrounding us. And my mother was nearby and had a feeling. She just had this feeling. She was with our teacher and she said, I got to go to the theater. Something's up. My mom's always been that way. And when she came into the theater is when it was crumbling. She felt something was wrong. And one of the cast members that was also a friend of ours, he was like, he put his arms up so that I could get off the thing. He was like, I got you. I got you. I jumped into his arms. And my mother, because my mother was like, she was running down the aisle going, all bets are off. I'm coming up. I'm getting my child. We were backstage. And in the time it took to get the set off, the stage was bare. And they were like, do you think you can sing? Because our big number was coming up. All the kids sang this big song. It was like an eerie ballad. And they were like, do you think you could do this? And we were like, and it was just very, it was getting more and more dramatic. Yes, yes, yes. The show must go on. Patrick, let me just tell you, when that curtain came up, the ovation that the nine kids got, that was the beginning of the end. That was, they created nine monsters, nine little monsters. They, it was like, there's nothing better on the face of this universe than what is happening to us right now. And life has to be like this. It can never not be. I can never not be on stage. And we all felt it. That was the moment I knew that I, I was a drama queen. We could, this is the greatest moment. <laughs> By the way, the danger was real. That's the funny thing is that. Right, something really could have happened to you. No, no, it was crumbling. Like that's the thing. And, and the way it was crumbling, if we fell, not only were we going to either get hurt or, or break bones, but we also could have fallen through the floor because there was an opening. That was what the problem was, is that there was a staircase, but there was an opening around it. So we also could have literally like, you know. Wow. That could have been the end of us. And so it was like that. It was very real danger. And then, and then we were um, in the paper the next day. Oh, why? Why would you put nine hams in a paper and go, with this giant root beer float that they got for us because we're alive? Our lives were spared and the show was going up. It was the it was the best thing. And all the adults that night, they were atmosphere because we came back. We were children and we came back on that stage on a bare stage with nothing and sang our song and brought the house down. It was incredible. And then I was like, this feeling is the feeling I want to have for the rest of my life. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, that's such a dramatic moment. I mean, yes, dangerous, but also dramatic. And then, as you say, once that ovation starts, Come you never, then. never want to get rid of that ever. The whole audience is looking at you, God, you little brave children, you brave little brown kids, because we're all brown. You brave little children, you. If you just move your pinky, we're here for it. And we're going to get, come on, are you kidding me? <laughs> and that is the other thing that it's live. It was the best thing to happen because you could get through anything. That's why we do theater. We're a particular breed of crazy because anything could happen when you're on stage and you just have to go with it. Mm -hmm. I was cast as Lucy in the touring company of Jekyll and Hyde. And there's a lot of moving parts to that set. Again, eight shows a week. So what could go wrong? You know, like <laughs> stuff is going to... 
you can't have things that are moving electronically and not know that you're in for a ride at some point. Never in a show. Never in a show. Come on. I mean, Anne of Green Gables that we did. Remember? (laughs) Wait a minute. That one. That was when the planks were just, I was like, oh, are we just going to keep on spinning? It's a turntable of planks and they're supposed to turn a certain way at a certain time. At a certain time. And stop (laughs) at a certain time. And of course, I mean, from tech rehearsal, I looked at the girl running automation and I said, this is nothing on you, but that is going to break at some point. It just is. certainly did. I remember. And I was like, of course it is. Of course. And they're like, well, well, we're, I was like, no, it's not about you. It's going to happen. You're just asking for it. Yeah. yeah. And you know it's going to happen. That's the thing is you're like, and you know that you will deal with it. Because what did you do in Jekyll and Hyde? How did you deal with it? There was a, a set that the scene switches from outside to Dr. Jekyll's office. And Lucy is sitting in the office, but that part of it slides in. You know, again, it's all electrical and it slid in and creates the office, right? It's a segue. But then it slid right back out. And I was like, well, there you go. I was supposed to start <laughs> talking to him. And then it, it, it stopped and slid back in. And we were starting the dialogue and my chair just started to turn. <laughs> just started. I was like, well, there you go. I mean. <laughs> but at the same time, that is also what is so magical about theater. Just that anything can happen, whether it's a line or something happens with another character or the chair beneath you just starts yes. to move. And, and, you know, the audience loves that, too, because. They get to say, oh, I was there the night. You know, you love that. Like, I saw Mean Girls the night that uh, the lady playing the lead, her wig fell off, and it was just her wig cap. And Ashley Park was trying to hold it on, and they were, of course, hysterically laughing. She was trying to hold the mic on because it was she was just left in her stocking cap and mic on top of her head. Because it was supposed to be a, a quick illusion thing where suddenly she's in a, another top or something. That wig came off, but they couldn't go on because they had to reset it. It was important to me. So they had to bring the curtain down. Ashley came backstage. When did I see her? I guess, oh, I guess she saw Head Over Heels. And I got to tell her that. I said, I was there the night that the curtain came down because of that. it was one of the funniest things. They could do no wrong. The audience, first of all, we're all fans of the movie. We're, 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 the whole audience is there to, because we love it. We were screaming laughing. And when the curtain came back up, they practically got a standing ovation because that's what, the, that's what it is. In that moment, it's not about the fourth wall because we're all just involved in whatever that moment is. And it was great. You know, I've had a bunch of those moments. Well, when it comes to to theater, obviously the highs are wonderful, and that's why we keep doing it. But it's going to have its little low points, disappointments. I, I know for me, like one of mine was back in middle school when another boy was cast in the high school's production of The Sound of Music. I didn't get to do it. He got to do it. It's very devastated. Yeah, because when you audition for something and you really want it and you feel that you have fired on all cylinders and you don't get it. I think I went through a period of time where 
you were made to feel like you, you, you look, just shake it off, just shake it off and you go on to the next and you're, you know, you hear people say all the time, your job is auditioning. I get that. And yes, but auditioning, you know, unfortunately, like a job does not pay your bill. You know, I'm not so into the hiding of my disappointment anymore because I feel like sometimes we're asked to hide our feelings or change the way we feel or feel bad for feeling bad. I mean, I think as you get older, you look and go, what do people keep telling us that no longer serves me? Sometimes I'm just really disappointed and it's, it's okay to be that. And then sometimes I will not get something and I can, you know, shake it off, but it depends on how much I really want it. It depends on if I am thinking, gosh, I know I can, can do this. And it's okay to live in that for a bit. I think when we start denying our feelings, it doesn't make sense. We're actors. We're, we're a bundle of feelings and we're supposed to expose them. Well, and especially for you starting out as a child, I think that's why some adults don't want to be with children because it can be so unpredictable. It can be just this bundle of emotions. It can be unprofessional, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But then some children that are just a delight to be with, both on stage and off. So you yeah. never know what you're going to get with that. Oh, the kids in Caroline are change. Oh, my gosh. I love them so much. They're so talented. It's ridiculous. They are real show business kids. There was a, um, a trend. You know, we go through trends in, in the industry of using real kids. We want real kids. You know what? Give me a show business kid over a real kid any day because I need somebody who knows, number one, that this is make-believe. I want them to hit their mark. I want them to cry on cue. I want them to be, be that show business kid is they're invaluable. And every one of those kids in Carolina Change was a show business kid. In realism, we can get, let them go to a reality show. And if you want, if you want those kids, let, but for theater and movie, I, I love a kid that knows that this is a business and knows what they're doing. There's a very rough scene between Caroline and Noah, the little boy in Carolina Change. And some things are said from Caroline that I found really difficult to say just as a human being. When we were in rehearsal, the first time that I had to say that to one of the Noahs, you know, we did the scene and we're in it and came off stage and I just, I just bawled my eyes out because it was so difficult for me to say something that cruel to a child because you know how much I love children. You got like, if you're around me for like three seconds, you know, I love children and animals so much. And my castmates were like, I know, I know. He's okay, he's okay. (laughs) He came to me like an old man. He was like, we're good. good." (laughs) But he was like this grown man. I was like, I said, I love you. And from that time on, when whenever, because uh, I, I went on several times, and from that time on, before we would always start, we would look at each other, no matter who I was going on with. We love each other. This is just make-believe. Nothing we say matters. Nothing we say is true. We love each other. And uh, when, when we were closing, uh, Jaden, who I went on with a, a lot, my Noah, 
and um, he made cookies for everybody with sayings on him and he put on mine. And I still have it. I have it in the freezer. I was like, there's no way I could eat them. We love each other. Remember that always. We love each other. And this is all just make believe and nothing. And I was like, looking at my cookie going, how sweet are you, these kids? Give me show business kids any day of the week. Any day of the week. For early access to each episode, as well as other bonus content like audition stories and the final five questions, become a monthly or yearly subscriber to Why I'll Never Make It. Though I certainly enjoy producing this podcast, I'm essentially a one-man operation, and it's both costly and time-intensive to put together these episodes. So for just a few dollars a month, you'll not only support these podcasting efforts, but you'll also get to hear these extended conversations without promotions like this one interrupting you. So please consider lending your financial support to this podcast with a monthly or yearly subscription by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe or just look for the link in the show notes. It's interesting you talk about being able to say harsh things on stage, because it's one thing when you do it on camera, you get, you know, one, two, three, four, maybe five takes, you know, depending on what it is, different angles, but then it's done. But theater, there's something about it. It's that eight times a week. It's that week after week, sometimes months ongoing, where you're in in these rough scenes like that. And certainly with a child, you know, you, you, you want to know, you want, you want, harder with a child. Yeah, you want that child yeah. to know it's make believe, but even with adults, cause I I've been reading about, you know, just as we've gone through the last couple of years and a little more racial awakening and just trying to navigate that. And now certain plays are being produced that have tough elements in it and presenting things like that between people of different racial, different classes. And so have you found that same type of connection, even with adults or or kids, when you're having to present tough material that has a historical reference to it as well like that? I am careful about the roles that I choose when it's either, you know, straight play or musical theater because of when you're doing eight shows a week, you know, that it's pretend, but your cells don't know. You know what I mean? Your body doesn't know that. That's why taking care of yourself physically, emotionally, and financially is important because it's a difficult thing to do. But because we love what we do, it is diminished by so many people. I find that a lot. I've had people say that to me. No, and no matter how hard the, the schedule is, I've had people say, but you're doing what you love. Yes, I am doing what I love. But that doesn't mean... <laughs> it doesn't mean it took a lot of work to get there. Nobody ever says that to a producer or a director or a casting right? I know nobody says those things, but you're doing what you love. They're like, yes, that, it is hard. <laughs> With actors, they're like, put on your clown collar and get out there and make us laugh, you know? Because they say that with uh, Olympic athletes, like, like, oh my gosh, the, the, the trading and struggles that they went through. It's like, but they're doing what they love. 
I mean, they love those sports, whatever events they're in. It's interesting. We recognize the hard work that someone who does a marathon or someone who does a high jump or all these different gymnastic events, but yet someone gets on stage and sings their guts out and they're smiling and they hit that high note. And it's like, wow, they're just doing what they love. It's almost like we don't see the hard work. And I can point to you when we did Anne of Green Gables, your big 11 o'clock number as Marilla after Matthew dies like it it was interesting some of the vocal choices that you make i was like how is she going to do this eight times a week and yet every show you were there your voice was there and i know that it was it was preparation on your part like the things that you would do vocally certainly i know on stage and hopefully an audience gathered that that it was something that took training and precision and exactitude to get night after night Because doing it once for a recording, fine. You could do probably even more than you did. But to do what you did takes training. It takes hard work. And you love it, but it, as you say, it doesn't diminish the craft and work that goes into it. Yeah. And we also, when you're doing eight shows a week, you live a certain way if you're going to do eight shows a week at 100%. I was always taught, you know, you give 100%. And that's valuable. You know, I think sometimes when you're talking about, have I been disappointed with roles that I didn't get? I've lost roles to people that had a higher social media profile than I did. And I know that sounds like an excuse, but like, really, like, I've lost hard theater roles that I believe in my heart should go to theater people to people who've won contests. And, I, you know, I'm, I want to say I'm not putting that down. It's just that sometimes I would think exactly what you just said. It's not just about one show or even a week of shows. It's eight shows a week. And I get it. It's a business. You want the person who's out there famous on television to play... But it's unfortunate because I, there were a couple of instances where I absolutely knew that I would be the better choice and that I also would be the person that will be there every performance and bring their A-game because of my experience. So sometimes that is frustrating because that's happened a couple of times and, and you're just like, okay, I can't fight this. But by the way, you, you should have picked me. And, you know, there have been instances I'm speaking carefully because I want to be able to get my point across without bashing something else or outing something else. So I will just say, because I don't want to get into specifics, there is a role that that I played for a, a lo- length of time. And when they did the revival of that show somewhere else, it took three people a week to do what I was doing eight shows a week. And I was like, what? To me, I'm thinking, why are you going for less experience? You know, it's, it's something that sometimes you just don't get. You're like, why couldn't you just get the person that could do it? Why three people, you know, they didn't start off with that. They just, the one person couldn't make the whole week, so they got a second person. But then that person couldn't do that, so they had to to juggle. And I thought, I know 
eight women that can do, <laughs> can do that, you know, like. I think that I find that with a lot of musical theater that I go to. And, and as you say, it is a commercial business and they got to put butts in the seats. And to a certain point, I get that. But they often go for this big name that will bring in, they hope, that will bring in tickets. But yet, I know, of, as you say, I know this line of people that would be around the block that could do it eight times a week and in their sleep more so and more easily yeah. than this person. But yeah. we are definitely, I mean, it's kind of always been this way, but I think even more so now with social media and YouTube and just videos and personality is around us all the time, more so than actual talent. Right. And so I think personality grabs our attention and gets us and excites us or makes us laugh or whatever it is. And we gravitate toward that rather than the nuanced artistic work that can go into someone's craft. Right. Well, I do agree with, with most of that, but I think what happens is I'm one of those people that also thinks while personality may not be enough to do eight shows a week, I do think there's a skill to that, to making these platforms work for you to be able to monetize them. So I, I don't think that the person that is uh, YouTube famous may not necessarily be able to do eight shows a week, but they might be able to successfully do television and films. I point to the Kardashians because everybody is always talking about them and claiming they don't watch them. And I'm like, they, the people that claim not to like the Kardashians like know way more about them than I, I do. I'm like, you're watching something. But when people say that they're angry because they're famous for nothing, I want to look and go, even if you thought that was true, can't you have respect for the empire they've created off of quote unquote, nothing. Like, can't you have respect for, it is a business. They employ so many people. There are people like you. I'm not so quick to turn down uh, the hustle that people have. It is the hustle for the technology that we have for the day that we're living in. And by the way, if I luck up on something like that, you can hate me too. Because it's about paying rent and taking care of my child. And, you know, it's, it's, it is about working smarter, not harder. And, and so I guess because I'm older, people expect me to have a different point of view. But I don't. I look and go, you found a way to make your your dreams, which it doesn't mean I have to like them personally or what I'm not talking about personally. I'm talking, I'm literally talking about business and what they've made. There, there are 20 year olds that are making so much money from TikTok. I get that people are like, well, they're not doing anything. I get that. However, don't be angry at them. Why don't you talk to the people who want to see it or who are buying it or who, like this person finds a hustle and it's working and you're attacking them. It doesn't make sense to me because first of all, you're, how do you know about them if you're not watching? Them? So what are you getting so mad about? I try to find less ways of getting upset. <laughs> there's so right. much stuff. Really, there's so much stuff that's coming at us. I'm like, that's what you're going to get upset over? You know, like 
people lost their minds. Uh, this is again, I always want to be respectful. The uh, funny girl with the lead being replaced. That I, I'm not talking about how one actress, how that must have felt. I'm not talking, I'm talking about the fervor over that situation, but not Paradise Square. And for actors, the trouble that, that they had on Broadway because of a crooked producer and the, and the awful things that that cast and company went through, to me, that's what you should be getting upset over. That's really a bigger de issue because that man never should have been allowed to produce again. I mean, that like, that's a big deal. Like people were really hurt. And to me, people choose what it is that they want to like get all crazy about. And then the real stuff that we should dig in and go, we, we have to make sure this doesn't happen again. It just goes over everybody's head. They gloss over that. That becomes, we'll talk about that for five minutes, but then we got to get to this other stuff. And, and, the people that are discussing it the most are people who are, aren't even in show business at all. So sometimes I see the, these comments and I'm like, you don't even know what you're talking about. And then I, I'm like, stop looking, stop looking. You're not, you're not a part of this. Stop looking. Because one time I scrolled and I made a comment. I was like, this is none of your business. These people are not in show business. But I made a comment and I said, why, let me do, let me be tactful and not confrontational. But I was, strange loop announced that they were closing. And everybody knows that, that that's surprising when a show wins the big Tony for it to close, you know, that's a big deal. And people in theater know oh, that exactly what that means and the jobs lost and what that means for actors and the technicians. And how surprising it is. But the people having the dialogue online were not in show business. We're not actors. And this one person was like, don't worry about them. It gives them a, it gives the actors an opportunity to find new work. It was all like, this is a jolly thing. This is a good thing. This person that I shut down was answering everybody's questions. But this person is not in show business. So he, this person was giving out information that was wrong talking down to this woman who said, I feel so bad for the people that are going to be out of work. So it made, made a comment to make them feel like you're stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. And so I commented to the lady and said, thank you for showing empathy. Our industry is difficult to have a show finally get to Broadway after 18 months of a lockdown in an industry that is already unstable. And then to get there, and to have a short run when most people have not worked in now two years. It's not a la la la, let's just get, it's not, actors don't see it as, oh good, finally get an opportunity to look for more work. <laughs> I said, yeah. so I wrote that and I said, thank you. And then the other person wrote back, I have to remind myself that because we're online, you can't see intent and I have to watch my words. And, you know, that's not what I meant and blah, blah, blah. And I said back, this is why I don't look. I said, I love the fact that we can't 
see each other and that it's just words only because it forces you to choose your words wisely or not choose words at all, which sometimes is the wiser choice. No comment back. Shut that down. <laughs> I, was, I just was like, and I'll just say this once and then I will keep quiet for life because I can't get into that. And, I, and plus, I didn't want to, I wasn't trying to be confrontational. I was just saying, especially because we're online, choose your words wisely. Like that's, that's the great exercise that we have with social media is that you don't have, no one's holding a gun to your head. And first of all, asking for your opinion. No one, can, no one is asking, no one is begging you, please, please impart your wisdom, <laughs> you idiot. Please impart your wisdom. No one's doing that. So if you're going to make a comment, why don't you just give it a few minutes? Think about it. Yeah. Just form that thought. Just think about it. Or how about this? Just think about it. And you don't have to post it at all. Move on with your day. Move on with your day. That's what people used to do back in the old days. <laughs> it just keeps them. You know, like my mom said this all the time. She said, everybody's not entitled to your opinion. I'm so tired of social media gurus. I cannot tell you. We don't. None of us have this figured out. Life. None of us. And everybody wants to get on social media and go, hello, friends. You know what you should do today? And I'm like, turn off my cell phone because I don't want to hear you talk. <laughs> right. That's right. what I should do. We don't have <laughs> it figured out because this is actually really hard. It's really, it's difficult. And, and unfortunately, now people believe social media, what you're showing them is your best, your highlight. And so that, yeah, that's not, that's not healthy. Because if I come to over to your house when you're not looking, well, first of all, I'd be arrested because, you know, that's breaking and entering. <laughs> but if you were to see people, <laughs> if you were to see people in their private time, you will see nobody has it all together. That's their hustle. And you're a part of it. It's like, I'm a life coach. And, you know, more power to you. But I'm, I'm not going to listen to you because, I, first of all, I'm older than you. So, and I'm not even, like, wanting to give that kind of advice. Right. We certainly don't have our lives together. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> still goodness. Still learning. We're still learning. It's like, how can you get up there and go, you know what you should do when you know you're probably, like, one super life event away from a nervous breakdown yourself like that is where everybody's doing the best that they can do and that should be the only advice given do your best do the best you can do the best you can because this is hard this is hard stuff Thanks for listening to Shaycat and me for part one of our conversation. And please come back to join us next time for part two as she shares her third story and a very funny audition story. And remember, you'll get early access to that episode by becoming a WinMe subscriber. But I never want finances to keep anyone from this bonus content. So if a monthly or yearly subscription isn't possible for you, then please contact me at it at gmail.com and I'll be happy to offer you a reduced price or even free subscription. Well, until next time, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and publishing this podcast, which is a production of WinMe Media. Background music used in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and John Bartman. 
Be sure to join me in two weeks as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.